The Afterword is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash afterword. That's W-O-R-D. Hello, I'm June Thomas, welcoming you to The Afterword, a Slate podcast in which I talk with the authors of new non-fiction books. My guests today are Robin Marantz-Hennig and Samantha Hennig, whose new book, 20-something, Why Do Young Adults Seem Stuck?, has just been published by Hudson Street Press. Robin and Samantha, thank you so much for coming into the Slate studio to talk about it. Happy to be here. Yep, thanks for having us. First, let's just start by stating what some people might be wondering. You two are mother and daughter, and for people who've been listening to Slate Podcasts for a long time, yes, this is the Samantha Hennig who did the Slate Explainer podcast some years ago and who has written and been the star of videos for Slate and its one-time sister site, Double X, for many years. And she now works at the New York Times magazine. And Robin is an award-winning science writer. I'm going to start with you, Robin. The book came out of a piece that you wrote in 2010 for the New York Times magazine. Tell us about that story and how it evolved into a book. Well, that originally was a story I wanted to write, I thought, uh, just about young people because I had two daughters who were in their 20s and I was really interested in that stage of life from the mother's perspective. Mm -hmm. And so what I found was a certain conversation going on in the psychology community about whether these young people are actually experiencing a new life stage that they called emerging adulthood. And that's what the article was about, was the controversy over whether emerging adulthood really is a new developmental stage of life. It was a very popular article. I was surprised at quite how popular it was. It sort of um, went viral. So when a couple of publishers asked me if I wanted to expand it into a book on that topic, I said I was willing to, but only if my daughter would write it with me. And Sam, what was it that drew you to becoming involved? Well, it's hard to say no to your mother. Although your sister did. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. She's always been better at saying no to our mother than I have. There was actually a slate discussion about the article after it came out. And I found myself jumping in there because I felt like people were missing the point of the article Mm. a little bit. And I did want to defend my mother, but also just defend the thesis, Mm. um, which I thought was being misinterpreted in part because of the headline, I think, and the Mm -hmm. packaging. Writing that and getting involved that way made me feel more attached to the subject matter and feel like if my mother was going to do this, I didn't want her to do it alone. (laughs) It's not just a magazine. In fact, it's it's really not at all a book-length expansion of that piece. It really is an attempt to assess whether millennials are experiencing things in a very different way from the way that, for example, baby boomers did. Right. That turned out to be kind of a secondary theme in the book. What we began with was hoping to talk about the 20s as a time of life when you have to make a lot of decisions, when you have to close some doors after a lifetime of being told to keep your options open. (laughs) And the more we looked into it, the more we saw that you know, a lot of the things that are being said in complaint about millennials were actually said almost verbatim about baby boomers when we were young. Mostly, Robin, you kind of lead 
the chapters and then Samantha you join in. I just want to have one word about nomenclature because there are all kinds of ways to divide people into age cohorts and you in the book talk about millennials and how do you define that particular group? We're using it a little bit loosely. A lot of people who we talk to and and when we tell them the title is 20-something, I mean, especially people in their early 30s are like, wait, but all of this stuff applies to me too. And so we wanted a term that was a little broader than just 20-something because it is a sort of mushy group that we're talking about. I mean, we're mostly thinking about people from like 25 to 35, which isn't exactly Gen Y because it's sort of creeping into Gen X. And we wanted to steer clear of the census Terms. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we felt like millennial gave us a little more wiggle room. Right, right. Right. And it, it also is a nice term because it, it talks about when they came of age. You know, the idea of coming of age at the turn of the millennium yeah. was kind of nice to us. Absolutely. At the beginning of the book, you note that millennials are hitting the five big milestones of adulthood about five years later than baby boomers did. The milestones are controversial because Mm. not everybody hits every milestone. Um, But traditionally, they are, um, let's see, leaving the house, finishing your education, getting a job, getting married, having having your first first child. But I guess that another way of leaving the house is to become financially independent Mm. is another way of describing that. So there are some people who, you know, never get married and never have children. And it's not as though those people are not right. adults. Right. Uh, but it's, it's a handy reference kind of to see when most young people achieve all five of those kind of generally accepted milestones. And yes, they are generally achieving them about five years later than they did a generation ago. Yeah, we definitely found that on timeline issues, things are different. And I think part of that has to do with societal expectations. There's less pressure to get married, have a kid. In terms of the getting married and having a kid part, there's birth control changes and um, reproductive technology. So like sort of expanding the idea of how late people think that they can Mm -hmm. get pregnant. And then in terms of financial timeline. I think a big part of it is also the change in student loans. People owe a lot more money, so it takes longer to be off on their own, like really uh, financially secure. I came away with the feeling that the the later timeline for babies actually drove much else. You Mm -hmm. know, when I was young, there was really this sense that, that there was an age 30 deadline. If you wanted to have kids, you needed to start by the time you were 30. It was a biological imperative and also something of a social imperative. Uh-huh. And, and, you know, there was just the beginning of IVF and stuff, uh-huh. but there wasn't really a sense that you could do anything about your waning fertility. Right. And feeling that, I think, pushed people quicker to yeah. making decisions about, you know, getting married to the guy they were with at the time right. and buying their house so that they could, you know, have room for a nursery and all mm-hmm. those things. So the sense that at least in a certain class of college-educated young women, almost nobody has babies until their early or mid-30s. That just sort of eases all those other decisions, I think. Do young people today have a harder time making choices than at other historic periods? Well, it's hard to say for certain whether it's a harder time. But, um, I mean, one thing that we did come away with is the idea that there are just so many choices right now. And there's such an awareness of how many choices there are. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, 
there may have been just as many before, but you sort of only see what's around you. And now with the World Wide Web, you see it all. And yeah. so it, it can be really overwhelming. And, you know, just one example of that is online dating, which a lot of my friends have talked about as this like dark rabbit hole, because once you start just clicking through people and you just find yourself being like, no, no, <laughs> no. And it's just this sort of uh, this blank, weird zone that you wouldn't get into if you weren't on the internet and if you didn't have this feeling that you can keep clicking forever right. and there will be more people and maybe better people. And yeah. so then it does become sort of paralyzing to figure out when is this good enough? When yeah. is this, you know, person on OkCupid good enough? When is this job good enough? Because mm -hmm. there's just this feeling that it could you could just keep going right. and trying new things indefinitely. Yeah, well, one of the just very specific examples you talked about Facebook and just the awareness now that you see people's choices. I mean, when I graduated from college, I left the country and I really, you know, people didn't even know if I was alive. Now, if we'd all been on Facebook, I would have been aware of what they were doing and that would have been so much more peer pressure. It seems weird that just one company could have that psychological effect, right. but it feels very real right. to me. I spoke to, to one young man in his 30s who was in graduate school still, so he was felt very behind from all the people he had grown up with in Pennsylvania, and he said yeah. the worst thing was seeing on Facebook when they, you know, they'd reconnect with him and say, how many children do you have? Or they'd reconnect with him and he'd see all the pictures, and yeah. he didn't really have the sense that he had to be in a certain place from his immediate environment, but Facebook expanded that peer pressure. He was feeling like he wasn't living the life that Facebook expected yeah. him to live. Another thing that I hadn't really thought about, but that you called out was that millennials experienced 9-11 when they were very young. And that had really a quite profound effect on them. Um, and which extends beyond the more than 2 million of them who've served in the US military in Iraq and Afghanistan. Can you talk about what that did to young people? Well, it was hard enough for adults to realize yeah. that we were that vulnerable and that everything could change in an instant. But when when you were only in, you know, middle school or high school, Sam was in high, was a senior in high school, then you don't really know what to count on. You know, I think it's much more destabilizing mm -hmm. for the world to seem so unreliable when you're that young. You know, right. that was that's the age when parents are always telling kids, "Don't worry, everything will be all right." And and here was this moment when the parents couldn't possibly say that to the kids. Let's get to one specific area, schooling. As you mentioned earlier, the job market has changed a lot so that a college education is far more important, I think, than it once was. Um, but it's also much more expensive to get one. And the whole world of student loans has gotten far more heavy, I feel. You ask if college is worth the expense, is it? That's what the experts are still saying, you know, when they sort of sit down and try to figure out, well, it depends on what, what you're asking about worth it. Yeah. You know, if, yeah. they, if they try to sit down and figure out what your salary advantage would be over a lifetime based on what you invest in college for the four years, you do come out way ahead. You know, there was one calculation that said, okay, you've invested $100,000 plus dollars in your college education, but... Over a lifetime, you'll earn another $800,000 extra or in some fields, another million plus extra. So it's worth it in that way. Well, and um, it's even 
in that way, the best thing that you could invest your hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars in. Right. They said it was like a fifteen percent return on investment or something that you couldn't right. possibly get anywhere else. I still am idealistic enough about college that I think that it's also something that enriches your life. If you go to school and really learn stuff, you're just a more informed, knowledgeable, open-minded kind of person. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's got to be good for the individual and for the rest of us. Well, and we're still living in a society where the credential means a lot. There are a lot of jobs that wouldn't be open to you without a bachelor's degree. Um, and I think that some of the people who have this campaign against going to college say, well, that shouldn't be the case. And, you know, that's a compelling argument and an interesting thought exercise. But for now, it is the case. And so as long as that's the case, then, yeah, you're putting yourself at a real disadvantage in this society to not have a bachelor's degree. There are many things about this discussion that are familiar to baby boomers. Mm -hmm. I mean, we found books from the 70s called The Overeducated American. And I remember when I was young, you know, everybody was talking about the taxi driver with a PhD because he couldn't get his any other kind of job. But I think that a big difference, as we said before, is that because it costs so much money and because so many people have to go into debt for it, the equation is a little bit different. You know, it's always been hard to feel like your, your bachelor's degree or your advanced degree was clearly making... Um, a job difference, but there's more at stake now. Let's pause for a moment to give away some books. But first, I want to let you know that this month, The Afterword is sponsored by Audible.com. They're offering a free audiobook to any U.S. listener who signs up for a new 30-day free trial. Audible has more than 100,000 audiobooks available for download, as well as audio versions of newspapers and magazines. Membership also includes free access to the daily audio digest versions of The New York Times or The Wall Street Journal. 20-something will be available on Audible soon, But for the moment, at least, I can recommend one fascinating look at a group of baby boomer women. There's a dramatized version of Wendy Wasserstein's play The Heidi Chronicles on Audible. As a play, it won a Pulitzer and a Tony, and the cast of Audible's version includes the great Martha Plimpton. To get your 30-day free trial, which will allow you to download The Heidi Chronicles or one of the other books available on Audible, go to audiblepodcast.com slash afterword. If you use that URL, the afterword will get credit audiblepodcast.com slash afterword. Now, Hudson Street Press has very kindly given us four copies of 20-something to give away to listeners, and Robin and Samantha have both signed them. If you would like one, send an email with the words 20-something giveaway in the subject line to slateafterword at gmail.com by 11.59pm Eastern Time on Friday, November 16th, 2012, and we'll choose four winners at random. If you've been lucky in one of our previous giveaways, please don't enter for at least three months after a win to give other listeners a chance. We'll contact the lucky responders so that we can get their postal address. And if you have any feedback about the podcast, please send it to the same address, slateafterward at gmail.com. I'm talking with Robin Morantz Hennig and Samantha Hennig, authors of the new book, 20-something, Why Do Young Adults Seem Stuck? So moving on to careers, young people have a terrible rap for not wanting to pay their dues. They all want to start at the top, you hear over and again. Is that true? But I guess more to the point, are there even any dues to pay these days? I mean, a lot of systems that used to be very clear 
have either disappeared or become much less clear, right? Mark Zuckerberg didn't pay many dues. David Karp didn't pay many dues. Mm -hmm. um, there are a lot of examples of these young guys, mostly, yeah. um, in the tech world who just decide to start something and never have to work for anybody but themselves. But, of course, everybody knows that that's the uh, unusual case. Uh, what's not unusual is wanting your job to be something that isn't soul-sucking. That, again, is something that we went through when we were young. You know, nobody wanted to be a cog in the wheel. Everybody right. talked about that. Nobody wanted to work for the man. So this quest for finding something that kind of expresses some interest of yours or something that's true to who you are and what matters to you, that's not new and that's really not something to be so pissed off about. Right, I mean, right. it seems like we should admire young people who are looking for some way to, to be expressive and creative. As far as paying your dues, though, a lot of young people now are expected to go to um, go through unpaid internships. I mean, right. that's the dues these days, uh, which is very hard for any but the most elite to manage. You know, Absolutely. if their parents are, are helping them pay their rent, maybe they can take an unpaid internship. At least in my industry in journalism, there's a real lack of models of seeing the dues paying really be worth it at right. this moment. I yeah. mean, I have witnessed a lot of layoffs mm -hmm. of the old guard. Mm -hmm. And so when you see that, then... It doesn't feel like a career with a real ladder that you climb up. Right. It feels very um, unstable. And so you sort of do find yourself jumping around more, I think, than you would if you felt like putting in time somewhere really led to a bond between right. you and your employer. It just seems too unstable. One thing we talked about in the book about where young people get this bad rap mm. that I found really mm. interesting was um, when you look at the way some young people behave in the office. Their elders kind of look at them and see that they're on Facebook a lot or they seem to be listening to music or they seem to be checking their phones. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of these signals that look like they're goofing off when, in fact, they're not. They're just interacting and thinking in a way that looks different mm -hmm. from what it looked like 30 years ago. And so I think that, in a way, office culture needs to readjust a little bit and realize that young people aren't lazy and aren't like slacking off. They're just doing it differently. There was another quote that you had somewhere, I'm sure you can correct me on it, that the next generation is always right. Right. As you said, you know, demographics mean that eventually the culture will change. And I think you can also definitely see that with telecommuting. To some people, I think, understandably, that that looks like slacking off. You know, mm -hmm. you're basic job as an employee is to come to work and sit at your desk and then you go home when the day is over. Right. And I think there's a whole generation of young people who dared to question that and say, if I can do the same thing from home, from my computer, and save the hour each way to get to work, isn't that more efficient for everybody? Um, and I certainly felt that during um, the hurricane right. when, for whatever reason, competitive juices. I don't know. We all felt this need to go into the office, yeah. which was ridiculous. Yeah. We spent, you know, more time going in and out right. than being there. But there still is this sense that that is what you do. And I think that the younger generation is questioning that and it's probably going to change. So you touch on a topic that heterosexuals of my acquaintance have argued about for decades. Is it better not to live together before marriage? Do people stay together longer if they don't? Now, you have some actual facts mm -hmm. on this question. 
I find the facts a little bit terrifying <laughs> because they signal that we're all doing it wrong. There is this thing called the cohabitation effect, which studies have shown that when couples move in together without being engaged or having at least talked about plans to get engaged and then they get married because they're sort of sliding into it because it's easier than not getting married at that point, then their marriages tend to be less happy than people who haven't lived together first. Wow. I actually found myself mentioning it to a young man I ran into the other day who was telling me excitedly about moving in with his girlfriend. Uh, oh, that's said, real nice. I, <laughs> I realized as I was saying it, um, well, maybe, you know, if I point out that if you've actually had a conversation about marriage, uh, that all changes. Um, I think that he had, I'm hoping that he had, or he was maybe just being more polite than I was being. It's a confusing and surprising finding. One of the reasons that people think they should wait to get married is that they want to try it out first mm -hmm. and live together. Is there a theory about why? Well, the theory is that, that I've read is that idea that you sort of, because it's easier once you're living together, you end up marrying someone who you wouldn't otherwise have married. Yeah. You're sliding into this thing that yeah. you, you, you didn't jump, you yeah. slid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah. and so you end up in a less good marriage. It could also be a little circular, though, because one of the ways that they measure a less good marriage is bad communication. Uh -huh. And what they're finding it in is couples who didn't really discuss the next step yeah. when they took their first step. It's also the case, though, it seems, I think I'm right, Sam, that women don't have as much unhappiness with the marriage that they slid into as men did. Yeah, because I think that they've probably they thought thinking, it through. Right. <laughs> um, but there was also um, a lot of the studies are a little older. And I think that there's a theory that as cohabitation becomes, you know, so much the norm that it's going to sort of balance out. Thanks to reproductive technology, women are having babies much later, which changes the way they think about so many things at other stages of life. <laughs> I mean, in some cases, they're expecting that they can have a baby with no problem far too optimistically. You know, they're yeah. just not thinking of it as a limitation anymore. And th there is still a limitation there. When they do studies of young women and say, when do you think fertility actually declines significantly? They tend to push it much further back than it really does. IVF is grueling and expensive. And even with IVF, the older you are, the less likely you are to succeed. Yeah. And you also have a chapter about the brain. The famous debate, is Google making millennials dumber? Is it making us all dumber? And as a non-millennial, it seems even worse to me, is it making them smarter? So what is the finding on, on this brain yes, business? I, I agree with you, June. I think it would be really <laughs> terrible if it was making them smarter. But I think that it is in a way. It's certainly making them more facile with many more facts at their fingertips yeah. and a better ability to juggle stuff. Mm -hmm. And to the extent that it's making people less... Um, able to memorize certain things, mm -hmm. it's almost a matter of efficiency. It's that they don't really need to. They do know that they can retrieve this information quite easily. Uh, the parts of the brain that seem to be used when you're Googling something aren't that different from the parts that are used when you're reading something. Huh. So it's not really that we're losing our brain power. People are always worried that the yeah. next new thing is yeah. going to make us Right. Uh, just get so much more stupid than we need to be. All through the chapters you're assessing, are today's 20-somethings all that different from the 20-somethings of their parents' generation, broadly speaking? What was the overall conclusion of the book? Can you give it away? Spoiler alert. <laughs> 
Well, this is where we are the wife and daughter of an academic. Oh, is that there's going to be we, some hedging. There was <laughs> yes. a lot, yeah, there was some hedging. It's yes and no. It's, it's certain things we found really are very different. Certain things are not that different. Um, <laughs> I won't give away which was which. <laughs> I would say, though, and this, this is a little bit of a spoiler, it was more alike than different. And that was a little bit of a surprise to me, certainly when you're looking at what all the headlines are saying. Yeah, that was Robin Morantz hennig and Samantha Hennig, whose new book, 20-something, is available in bookstores now. Thanks, both of you. Thank, Thank you. you. If you have any comments about our discussion, send them to slateafterward at gmail.com. Our engineer was Chris Wade. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. Thanks for listening to The Afterword. For Slate.com, I'm June Thomas.